closing out this Advent series. It's not technically Advent anymore. We just celebrated Christmas. So Merry Christmas or Happy Christmas, as we say in England. And we're sort of on the verge of the New Year, so also Happy New Year. Um, but we're going to be closing out this series today. And it's kind of a little bit of an obscure Sunday today. We're kind of between those seasons. This week has been kind of odd. Maybe some of you felt that. I always feel weird between Christmas and New Year. It's like, I don't know where I'm at. And maybe some of you relate to that this morning. It's like mixed emotions. The year's not quite done, but we're not quite into the new one. And there's like the high of Christmas or maybe the low of Christmas. So many different emotions going on. And, and in honor of this obscure Sunday, we're going to look at a really obscure verse this morning. And I'm really excited about that. It's going to lead us into the Old Testament, which you know makes me so happy. So, um, but we're going to start out by reading from Isaiah 9. And we've been reading that throughout this Advent season. Um, so we're going to read through that and then we're going to dive in this morning. So if you have a scripture, I have a, um, a Bible, go ahead and turn to the scripture Isaiah 9. And we're going to start at verse 2. It's also on the screen. If you would like a Bible, we have ushers coming around right now with Bibles. You can raise your hand and you can get one of those. It says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness. From that time on and forever, the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that it doesn't matter that this is a strange little obscure Sunday between 2018 and 2019. That God, that this is not a throwaway Sunday to you. This is not a Sunday when you're like, yeah, let's just wait till the next season to do something powerful and dynamic and transformational in our lives. God, that you are here today, and in fact, there's something about you that actually loves the obscurity, loves those in-between seasons, loves it when we're kind of like, oh, I don't know what's going on. It's an opportunity for you to come and show who you are, and that's what we're asking for this morning. We welcome you, Holy Spirit. We welcome what you want to do in our lives. We resist any discouragement and any distraction in the name of Jesus today. Amen. So Isaiah 9 is a prophetic word about the coming Messiah. It's about the king that's going to come and the kind of kingdom that he's going to usher in. And you see, Isaiah is painting a picture for Israel. He's using very intentional language. And we have to ask ourselves, what did this mean to the Jewish reader when they were reading this? Why is Isaiah using these kinds of words? You see, Israel is being told there's a better time coming. You've experienced dark times, low times. You've been oppressed and afflicted and things have been pretty bad. You've been enslaved. You've had a pretty dark history at times. 
But there's a coming Messiah, there's a king coming, and this is the kind of kingdom that he's going to bring. And I want to focus in on verse 4 this morning. It says, For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, and the bar across their shoulders, and the rod of their oppressor. What is the day of Midian's defeat? You see, for the Jewish reader, reading Isaiah's prophecy, this sort of meant something to them. This sort of carried some weight for them. So often we read scripture like this. We read through Isaiah 9. Gosh, I've read Isaiah 9 my entire life. I was raised in the church every Advent. Pretty much you read it. And I've never, ever asked myself, what is the day of Midian's defeat? I've thought about wonderful counselor, prince of peace, all that good stuff, but I've never dug into this. And sometimes we miss the richness of scripture when we just fly over it. Well, this morning, I want to dive into it. And to do that, we're going to have to go back to the Old Testament and to the book of Judges. Now, before we turn there and read the story and work through it, I want to give you a little bit of context for what is happening in this story in Judges that we're going to look at today. This is a particularly dark time for Israel. They have turned away from God, and they have started worshiping Baal and Asherah and all these false idols, all these false gods that the one true God said don't have anything to do with them. They've set up idols and altars to these false gods. And they're also being oppressed by other nations. And one of the nations they're being oppressed by is the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were a nomadic people. They would move around, and they would move in and out of Israel's land. And they would steal from them, and they would rob from them, and they would kill, and they would take. In fact, the book of Judges actually refers to them as locusts. That they would come in, and much like a wave of locusts, they would come unexpectedly, and they would consume them. And they would wreak havoc, and they would take and destroy, and they would leave, and everything would be barren. You see, this was a dark time when the the writer of Judges says they were like locusts. He's saying things were really bad. Things were really bad. They were impoverished. They were oppressed, and they were spiritually lost. And then enter our character for today, which is Gideon. He's this ordinary man. He's hiding at the time that God shows up in his life because that's what they did to avoid the Midianites. And God shows up for him in chapter 6 and calls him to be a leader. And there's kind of this back and forth, which we're not going to look at today, but you can go back and read that, where Gideon asks for signs and God shows up. And eventually, eventually reluctantly, Gideon's like, okay, sure, I'm going I'm to be a leader. And that's where we pick up the story today. Gideon has been called by God to attack the Midianite army. And they're camped in a valley, and Gideon has about 32,000 men. And we're going to start reading from Judges 7, verse 1. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn to that. And we're going to make our way through the story, and we're going to find out what is this day of Midian's defeat? What is Isaiah referring to? What is it that the Jewish people knew that maybe we don't know this morning? Starting in verse 1. Early in the morning, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all his men camped at the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them in the valley near the hill of Moreh. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many men. I cannot deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me. My own strength has saved me. Now announce to the army, anyone who trembles with fear may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 men left, while 10,000 remained. 
But the Lord said to Gideon, there's still too many men. Take them down to the water and I will thin them out for you there. If I say this one shall go with you, he shall go. But if I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So Gideon took the men down to the water. There the Lord told him, separate those who lap the water with their tongues as a dog laps from those who kneel down to drink. 300 of them drank from cupped hands, lapping like dogs. All the rest got down on their knees to drink. And the Lord said to Gideon, with the 300 men that lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hands. Let all the others go home. So Gideon sent the rest of the Israelites home, but kept the 300 who took over the provisions and trumpets of the others. Let's just paint the picture. We're going to just stop there for a second. Let's just paint the picture. Gideon is ready to attack, but God says, you've got too many men. You've got 32,000, too many men. And if you go and win this victory with 32,000 men, you'll be boasting and saying, it was us. We're such a great army. We're such a great strategy. I don't want that. I want you to know that this was my work. This was my hand. This was my deliverance. So God thins out this group. Now, it's estimated there's 135,000 Midianites. 135,000, 32,000 doesn't sound like it was going to be an easy battle. I mean, already the odds are not in Gideon's favor. Already things look pretty difficult, but God decides, you know, I think I'd like some worse odds. I'd like the odds against you. I'd like it to be like a little bit more difficult. So he thins out this group twice, and Gideon is left with 300 men, against 135, and this must have felt, sorry, 135,000. This must have felt terrifying, terrifying. See, God was bringing Gideon to the point where all his human confidence, all his security, everything he depended on was being stripped away. No great army, no great strategy, nothing human to lean in on. Would Gideon stay? Would he stay in the fight when everything he depended on is stripped away? When everything he thought that was going to happen, yeah, 32,000, doesn't happen, the unexpected happens, would he remain? Would he contend? How do we respond when God doesn't work things the way that we expect? What if everything we depended on, everything we find security and confidence in, what about when that slips away and disappears? Will we stay? Will we contend? Gideon must have been feeling incredibly vulnerable. He's not ready for this fight. I mean, he's not a trained warrior. He's not the logical choice. He doesn't have this incredible, like, mind of a general to lead these people. He seems like an illogical choice. And now he's got really low odds. I mean, could God do something incredible and bid with such a small, obscure group of 300 men? What was possible? See, it looks very unlikely and very absurd to us, 300 against 135,000. And yet scripture shows us that God seems to have a thing for the unlikely and the absurd. You've got Moses. He's hiding in a mountaintop leading sheep. And God says, perfect choice to rescue Israel from Pharaoh. You've got David out in a field with sheep And when Samuel comes to anoint the next king and they say, bring all the sons together, they don't even bother to call for David because why David? You've got Esther from like a strange land who changes the heart of a king and saved an entire nation from being annihilated. You've got Mary, a teenage girl 
one of the lowest places on the totem pole at that time in history. And yet God entrusts to her Jesus, the Messiah. These are all so illogical. They're not what we would choose. They're not the people that we would say the obvious choice. And yet God seems to have an affinity for the unexpected, the illogical choice, the nobodies, the terrible odds and the poor chances of success. And it seems this is where he does his best work. Let's keep reading in verse 9. Now the camp of Midian lay below him in the valley. During that night, the Lord said to Gideon, get up, go down against the camp, because I'm going to give it into your hands. And if you're afraid to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah and listen to what they are saying. Afterward, you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he and Purah, his servant, went down to the outposts of the camp. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the other eastern peoples had settled in the valley, thick as locusts. Their camels could do no more, could be no more than counted than the sand on the seashore. Gideon arrived just as a man was telling a friend his dream. I had a dream, he was saying. A round loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp. It struck the tent with such force that the tent overturned and collapsed. His friend responded, this can be nothing other than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash, the Israelite. God has given the Midianites and the whole camp into his hands. When Gideon heard the dream and its interpretation, he bowed down and worshipped. He returned to the camp of Israel and called out, Get up! The Lord has given the Midianite camp into your hands. Dividing the 300 men into three companies, he placed trumpets and empty jars in the hands of all of them with torches inside. Watch me, he told them. Follow my lead. When I get to the edge of the camp, do exactly as I do. When I and all who are with me blow our trumpets, then from around the camp, blow, the camp blow yours and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. This is such a strange part of the story. We're going to stop there again. A Midianite man has a dream about a loaf of bread rolling down a hill. And then another Midianite man says, oh, I know what that is. That's Gideon coming to destroy the Midianites, which is us, right? This is strange. <laughs> this is strange. I don't know. I've never had a prophetic dream about a loaf of bread, but apparently it's possible. And so they have this dream, and they're talking about it, and Gideon has been strategically placed there by God to hear this. It's like they're talking about a loaf of bread, which is me, and they're talking about my victory over them. I mean, you can't get any more clearer on what God is trying to communicate. You see, the thing is, sometimes God lets us in behind the scenes. He gives us a little sneak peek into what he's doing, and it changes our perspective. And that's what happened with Gideon. See, sometimes you get to peek behind the curtain, and you get to see what's been going on the whole time, which is that God has been fighting the battle before you even showed up. That God has been working in our lives, behind the scenes, bringing fear to the enemy, crumbling the enemy, before you even knew you were in a battle. That's how God works. He's not just aware, he's fighting it. You see, some of us think, God, I'm in a battle, like something's going on, I'm struggling with this thing, I don't know what to do. And God's like, I know, I was here, I've been fighting it, where you've been sleeping, where you've been doing your thing, I've been in this battle. What battle are you fighting this morning? 
What are you wrestling with? What are you struggling with? Where do you feel alone? Like, God, if you just show up, God's word to you this morning is, let me give you a peek behind the curtain. I've been fighting that battle with you since before you knew you were in it. If you knew for sure that God had been fighting your battle, how would it change how you respond this morning? How would it change your levels of anxiety? How would it change the way you live your life? How you talk about your struggle and your battle? How would it change you if you knew that that was true this morning? See, we can presume upon the goodness of God. We can presume upon it because it's his character. You see, we don't always get those sneak peeks, do we? I mean, I'd love it if every challenge in my life, God woke me up with a dream about a loaf of bread and suddenly I knew and I was like, oh, I see it clearly. But we don't always do that because this is a life of faith. That means that we say, you know what, God, I know you're working behind the scenes of my life because it's who you are. It's your character. We can presume upon the goodness of God, but it doesn't mean that we don't do anything. In fact, we have a very important role to play. We'll pick up our story in verse 19. Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the edge of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, just after they changed the guard. They blew their trumpets, broke the jars that were in their hands. The three companies blew the trumpets and smashed the jars, grasping the torches in their left hands. Holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. While each man held his position around the camp, all the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. When the 300 trumpets sounded, the Lord caused the men throughout the camp to turn on each other with their swords. Stop there. See, Gideon and his men are around this camp. They are severely outnumbered, and yet God has promised them victory. They've got their torches, they've got their trumpets, they yell out this victory cry, and then they stand and they hold their position in obedience and in faith. And God confuses the Midianites, and they all turn on each other and start killing each other. You see, sometimes holding our position is the most powerful thing that we can do. See, God had set the stage for Gideon to experience victory and freedom, but Gideon and his men had to remain standing. See, Gideon could have gone down there and heard that dream and thought, God's going to give us the victory. Everyone hit the tents. We're going to snooze and it'll all be over. But that's not how God works in our life. He says, I'm setting the stage for your victory, but you must hold your position. You must step out in obedience. You must step out in faith and believe even when your circumstances don't look how you'd expect, even though you may not have what you think you need, to hold your position. See, for generations, Jewish people would have talked about this story. I can just imagine them around the campfire with their kids, talking about, oh, remember the day of Midian's defeat? Tell us again, how many men did did Gideon have? 300. Oh my gosh, and tell us again, like, you know, the victory and that dream. What was that dream? And that shout, like, they would have told these stories. They knew this. They knew that when when darkness was in Israel, God didn't leave them there. They didn't abandon them. He showed up and he gave them this victory. This story would have inspired the Jewish people, reminded them who God is 
and put a stake in the ground to remember that God sets the stage for our freedom on our victory. So when Isaiah 9, when he writes about this, they would have known exactly what it meant. Carried so much weight for them. So much, so much um, importance in their culture. This day of the defeat of Midian. They would have known it was about God taking a small, obscure group of men and doing this miraculous thing. They would have known it was about Gideon smashing those torches, raising a victory, and then standing. They knew the importance of that story. It would have stirred their hearts and given them hope. And so when Isaiah says, hey, when the king comes, it's going to be like the day of the defeat of Midian, they would have all gone, oh, so good. Remember that day? But here's the thing about judges. This story and some of the others that you find in the book give us highlights of of Israel's victory. But sadly, if you keep reading through that book, Israel again turns back to false gods. And the book actually closes with, in those days, Israel had no king and everyone did, did as they saw fit. What a sad end. This incredible victory and many others in the book of Judges, God shows up and does something miraculous, something, he brings freedom, he brings liberty, he brings deliverance. And yet, despite all of that, they still turned back. You see, the day of Midian, Midian's defeat, was a foreshadowing. It was a taste. It was a reference point for freedom of what we can experience if we follow God, but it wasn't everything. It was a signpost pointing forwards. See, Judges sets the stage for all of the kings to come. Judges, they failed. Some were good, some were bad. It was all over the place. It's like, okay, this isn't working. What do we try next? Oh, a king. Let's try a king. So it points towards the kings, but then the kings fail too. It's good moments, sure. But overall, they can't do what is needed. See, the Jewish readers of Isaiah's prophecy They knew the glory of Midian's defeat, but they would also know that the leaders and the kings were unable to usher in everlasting peace, everlasting liberty, everlasting freedom. For that, we would need a different kind of king and a different kind of kingdom. See, we needed freedom from the human condition. We need oppression and injustice to be destroyed and squashed for good. And no human being could bring that in. No judge, no king, no president, no influencer, no good woman or man over history was able to bring that in, in a kingdom that would last forever. Only one true king can do that. You see, that's Jesus. Jesus is the great deliverer bringing liberty and freedom in a kingdom that would never end. You see, unto us a child is born, not a warrior, but a child. And nobody expected God to descend in human form. Nobody expected a vulnerable child. Nobody expected 300 men to take Midian. Nobody expected a virgin girl to carry the deliverer. Nobody expected a child. It's so illogical. So absurd, and yet God had been working behind the scenes for Israel. When it was so dark and they thought everything was lost, God was up to something. And so in comes this child who becomes a man, who's a king, who ushers in this kingdom. 
and it's an everlasting kingdom and it confronts every oppression and it subverts systems and structures and anything that oppresses and dehumanizes and devalues. He's ushering in a kingdom that liberates and redeems and rescues and unshackles and it destroys demonic structures like racism and sexism and it brings down power that oppresses. That's the kind of kingdom that Jesus has ushered in. Freedom from sin, oppression, bondage, fear and captivity. This is the kingdom you can expect from this king. So if all of this is true, if this is what Isaiah was pointing to, saying, ah, Midian, that defeat, that glory, that's what it's going to be like. But unlike the past, where it was up and down all over the place, this will be an everlasting kingdom. If this is what Isaiah is saying, if this is who Jesus really is, what is our response to that today? What does that mean for us? What do we do with that? Well, maybe you're here today, maybe you don't know this kind of liberator. Maybe you feel like Israel. You feel like it's dark and you need some deliverance. You need someone to save you. Maybe you have no point of reference for freedom. Maybe there's no place in your life that you can look back to like the Jewish people had with Midian where you can say, oh, I knew what it was like to be free from bondage to be free from darkness. Maybe you don't know that. Maybe you feel like Israel with the idea of the locusts coming in and they would steal everything, they would take everything. Maybe you hear that story and you're like, that's like my life. Every time I've waited for something good to happen, it feels like somebody has come in and stolen it from me. In a moment, there's going to be a chance to respond. And I encourage you, if you're here today and you feel like that, then there is a great liberator that's here this morning. There is a deliverer that can meet you wherever you are in your life. Maybe you're a Christ follower here today and you have experienced a level of freedom. Maybe God has worked in your life even in this last year. Maybe you were recently saved. Maybe you were baptized. Maybe God met you in a powerful way. Maybe you received a prophetic word or healing. Maybe you moved in the prophetic. Maybe you've had this experience with the Holy Spirit and you're like, I feel so much freedom. Like, I just feel like God showed up. How do you keep partnering with God to hold on to that? How do you make sure that that is not just a moment in time, but that is the life that God is inviting you into every single day? How do we hold our freedom? In Galatians 5, Paul's writing to the Galatian church about legalism and how some of them have fallen back into this bondage where they believe it's all about works. It's all about trying. It's all about earning their salvation. And Paul is rebuking them and he's saying, no, it's a gift. It's grace. And in Galatians 5 verse 1, he says, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. So stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. And what the scripture tells us is that Jesus brings freedom, but there's something we have to do in order to keep it. Jesus brings the freedom. We don't earn it. We don't strive for it. He comes into our life and he cleanses us and he frees us and he shows up again and again and again. And he brings the freedom. But if we want to hold that freedom, we must resist being burdened again by a yoke of slavery. See, it's possible to experience freedom, to hear good news, to have experienced a level of breakthrough and change and then slip back into captivity. Through Jesus, we have access to tremendous 
liberty and salvation and redemption. But don't think for a second that we have no role to play. Those 300 men still had to show up for the battle. They still had to trust God. They still had to activate their faith. We have to hold our position. We have to stand firm. By its very nature, the scripture implies that it's, we're going to be tested and pressed not to stand firm. Listen, it is the devil's desire to destroy you. He will lie to you and harass you. He will set about your destruction. He wants you. He wants your marriage. He wants your children. He wants your future. He wants your mental health. He wants everything that God has done with you. He will come at you. Sometimes it will feel like a swarm of locusts. It will feel like the enemy is closing in and he wants to rob everything that God has done in your life. This is his plan for you. He will whisper to you. He will lie to you. He will discourage you. He will bring fear. He will overwhelm you. He wants to weary you. He'll talk to, think to you about things in your life and see this is hopeless. Nothing is going to change here. You should give up. That thing that you thought you experienced, that wasn't real. That was like a one momentary emotional high. That wasn't Jesus. He will oppress you. He will send an army for you. You will feel the force of his attack. But here's the good news. We have a king who ushered in a kingdom. That means we are victorious. And we stand under that victory. You see, some of you have been listening to the lies of the enemy, feeling intimidated, looking back, contemplating giving up the ground that you've taken. You've been feeling the pressure, wondering, can I really trust God with this thing in my life? Because it's getting really hot right now. It's getting really hard. We're thinking about going back like that 22,000 men. You see, the enemy will come for every piece of ground that you have taken. And if you do not stand firm, you will be shaken. As I prepared the sermon, I felt like God really gave me a word for our community for 2019, and it's as simple as stand firm. Elizabeth Elliot says, don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. Don't dig up in doubt what you planted in faith. What did you plant in 2018? What did you plant in faith? What prayers did you pray? What commitments did you give? Where did you risk everything for Jesus? Where did you put it in the ground and say, I believe I'm going to stand on the character of God? See, we planted stuff, but sometimes we begin to dig it up again because, you know, it's almost 2019 and we haven't seen it grow. When we look back over 2018, we can point to all these places that we planted in faith. And we said, God, I'm going to do the hard thing, the right thing. I'm going to set up healthy boundaries. I'm going to fight for my sobriety. I'm going to show courage. I'm going to show boldness. I'm going to step out in faith. And we plant these things in the ground. I'm going to trust you, God, even when everything's stripped away, even when it seems illogical and the circumstances and the odds are against me. I'm going to put it in the ground. What you put in the ground in 2018, don't start digging it up because it's December 30th and you haven't seen it yet. You see, the enemy will come and he'll whisper in your ear, that thing that you planted is rotten. It's not going to grow. Nothing is going to come of that. This is a waste of time. Don't keep watering that thing. It's dead under there. Nothing will come of that. 
You can't trust God with your life. You're getting older. You've got so much talent. Don't waste it looking at the ground and believing that something will come up. That relationship, that career, that spiritual gift. And the enemy will whisper, whisper, you're wasting your life. The odds are against you. This thing won't grow. Let me tell you, you're never wasting your life when you trust it to God. You see, some of you this morning need a miracle, and you're on the edge. I have a sense this morning that some of you have been on the edge, and you're looking back over this year, and you're like, you know, it's funny, every year starts with like the things, you know, on social media, like, best year of my life, right? And then (laughs) we all look back at the end of the year, and we're like, hmm, what happened to that best year of my life? Um... And some of us are looking back right now in 2018, and we were those people that were posting that January 1st, like, best year of my life, this is going to be blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And then we'll rev it back up for January 1st, 2019, and we might post it again. See, the enemy loves to jump on that. Best year of your life? Well, you planted all this stuff. You gave up that job that paid you so much money because God told you so. You set really great boundaries in relationship. You fought for sobriety. Was it worth it? All those parties you missed out on. All that stuff you could have done. See, this is the stuff. You're like, how, how does Ruthie know? Because this is the same stuff he tells me. <laughs> it's the exact he tells me they're all just like positioned a little bit bigger like I'm not some great prophet up here it's just like he tells me the exact same stuff and he whispers and it sounds so real that that relationship's hopeless abandon it give up on it that child that you've been praying for you prayed so many years it's time just let it be see the weasels into our lives and he tells us these lies and the end of a year that's been somewhat disappointing Oh, it's like honey for the lies that just come and tell you that you should just give up on God and you should just rip it out of the ground and just abandon it. Don't dig up in unbelief, in doubt, in fear, what you planted in faith. And actually, I'd add to that, don't dig it up, but water it. Don't not just be like, oh, okay, all right, Ruthie said don't touch it. I guess I'll just hold on. Go back to that thing and say, you know, I planted this. Pull out your journals, look through your social media posts, remember the stuff, open your Bible. What did you do in 2018 that you know God pressed you into and you said, yes, I'm going to do it. Pull that stuff out and be like, oh, no, devil. I'm not only not pulling this stuff up, I am like repositioning on this in prayer and saying I'm still watering it. I'm still blessing it. I'm saying, yes, Jesus. Even though my circumstances don't look like it's actually happening, even though I don't see any growth and no flower, God told me to plant it. That means God will grow it. Amen? Look, God is not restricted by your circumstances or your lack, your personality or experience. Let me tell you, um, every time I preach, there's this like embodying of the message that has to happen. It's like the sucky part of being a preacher, where like, you, you, like I feel like God kind of leads me through my own journey before I stand on the stage and share it. And I've been, I've been in this place in the last month where I've had to fight. Man, some of you know that. I have some friends in this room, and I've texted you and been like, I've been on my kitchen floor, like, crying, because I just, I don't know, this area in my life seems hopeless, and I need God to do something. 
And that, that's been my story too. And I've had to fight. And I'm sharing that this morning because I want to send with you. Wherever you are this morning, you might be feeling like, woohoo, 2018's been awesome. Great. Please bless us all with that faith and that encouragement. But if you're anything like me, it's been ups and downs. And there are things I'm still waiting for. There's things I planted in the ground when I was 16 years old that I don't see yet. But I'm not going to let the enemy tell me that they're dead under there. Because God told me to plant them, and God is a God of life. So wherever you're at this morning, I want to say Jesus can meet us here. He can meet us here. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. You just wandered into church today because you're like, mm, starting a new year. Maybe I'll get a, like a shot of, of faith and it'll like carry me through the whole year. God's got more than a shot of faith for you this morning. He wants to change your life. Maybe this morning you resonate with the idea of been slipping. Maybe you feel like, oh, I had some really great breakthrough and I've just been kind of sliding backwards. I just want to say this morning, now's the time to dig your heels in. Say, mm, I'm going to keep moving forward. I'm going to hold my ground. I'm going to be like Gideon. I'm going to stand on that mountainside with my torch and my trumpet. I'm going to hold the ground that the enemy would love to take from beneath my feet. There are some of you here today that have feel in the thick of the struggle and the battle. You are literally feeling the tension in your bodies. feel like some of you here might be even just dealing with like maybe back issues or shoulder issues, that you're physically holding the tension of the spiritual battle that you feel like you were in. And this morning, we want to come around you and pray for you and believe for you that God has been fighting that battle since before you even knew you were in it. And there are some of you here today that feel like you resonate with the idea of locusts. You feel like your whole life has been trashed. You feel like the enemy's just come in and stolen from you. And in a moment, I'm going to invite you guys to come forward. You know that we've been kind of moving into these ministry times at the end of our services. And God has been showing up and doing tremendous things. People have been physically healed, healed from mental illness. Like God has been restoring relationship. Like so much good stuff has been going on. And just because this is that strange, obscure Sunday between Christmas and New Year, He's not taking a day off. He's really present right now. I'm going to invite the worship team to come on out, and we're just going to move into a time of just really anticipating what God wants to do in our lives. I think there's some of you here today that you know exactly what I'm talking about when I talk about you planted something in 2018. You know it, right? Immediately. You're like, oh, it's this thing that I did. It's this real step of faith. And you just have been so tempted to pull that thing up, to backtrack, to give up the ground. And if that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to come forward for prayer. And the prayer team is here and they want to pray for you. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus and you're just like, man, I want to experience some of this thing. I'm not even fully sold yet, but I feel like I want, to, I want some of that. Then I want to invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray for you. If you feel like you're in the thick of the battle, you feel like you're fighting, you feel like you're struggling, 
and you need someone to pray with you and stand with you, if you feel like the odds are against you going into 2019, I sense that there's, there's some people here and something has happened over the holidays that has made you almost like anxious and fearful about going into the new year. I don't know whether you've lost a job or something's changed financially or relationally, but you're like, oh, I wish I was excited about the next year, but now I'm just disappointed or fearful. I want you guys to start coming forward if any of this resonates with you. Jesus, I just thank you. I thank you that you show up to fight on our behalf. God, even when we don't even know we're in a battle. I thank you that we can trust you with the places in our lives where things have like slipped away. We feel stripped. We feel like without. We feel like we don't have the resources. We feel like the odds are against us. The circumstances are against us. I thank you, Jesus, that you show up in those moments. You are so faithful. And you say, stand your ground, hold your position. There's some of you here this morning that I sense God saying is, you know what that thing is that you've planted, and that word about not just pulling it up, but watering it really resonates. And you want to come forward and get prayer for someone just to bless that thing. It's like you want to call reinforcements around it and say, the enemy wants this thing. He wants this place in my life and I felt the pressure and I just need to call some people around me and say, I'm going to water this thing. I'm going to bless this thing. I'm going to believe this thing. We'd love to pray for you this morning. Thank you, Jesus, that you are so good. We love you. Amen.